like to ask you to please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's good to be back in your church and be with those of you that I've known and loved for many years, and then it's good to have a lot of visitors here today, some new folks that, that I don't know that have come since I was here last year, and I'm glad that you've found a home here, or I'm glad you've come to visit today, whichever the case. This is my 15th time to to come here to speak in your church in the last uh, 13 years that I've uh, I've been coming here and uh, I would assume that I've probably used this text before uh, it's a very very familiar text in the bible very familiar story uh, but I I don't but I but I've never and, and I'm and in some of the illustrations I'm going to use this morning I've used before in other messages I don't know if I've ever used them here or not, but uh, but I've never preached this message before. And um, Brother Vasek mentioned that, that uh, we're starting our message a little later this morning than usual. And um, he said we might get out a little later than usual, but I'll be surprised if we do. I, th- I think I, I know about how long it'll take to preach this message, so uh, I don't think we'll be more than just a minute or two later than, than usual, if uh, any at all. But I want to give you just a little bit of background, even though it's a very, very, very familiar story, probably one of the two or three most familiar stories in the entire Bible. It's about a young man whose name is uh, David, and the Bible does not tell us exactly how old he is when this particular story takes place, but if you study history and and, uh, people's lives in the Bible and compare it and so forth, you can figure out that David was probably about 16, 17, maybe 18 years of age. He was right along in there about 16 to 18 years of age. He was probably about the age of several of the young people that are here in the uh, room this morning when this particular story took place. We're going to read portions of the story. It's lengthy, and so we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to read portions of it. We're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 17 with verse 17. So 1 Samuel 17, 17. And Jesse, and I'll explain to you that Jesse is David's father. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now uh, for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn, and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto uh, the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul, and they, Saul was the king of the country and the captain of the army or general of the army at this particular time. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines that was their enemy at the time. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth uh, to, to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of a keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked, as he, David, talked with them, with his brothers and the other soldiers, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, 
Goliath by name out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. If you look at me just for a moment, earlier in the story, we didn't read all of it, it explains to us that this champion was a little over nine feet tall. He was an abnormal person. We'd call him a giant, but he was a real person. This is not a fable. This is not a make-believe story. The Bible is not a book of uh, fables. The Bible's a history book. It, it tells you what actually happened. And this story actually took place. So let's look now in verse uh, 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, this big giant, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel he is come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king, will enrich him with great riches and would give him uh, his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to this man that killeth the Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, the eldest brother, David's oldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down thither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I done? Uh, wh- 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 uh, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And then if you'll skip down to verse 33. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept thy father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went after him, after the lion, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Now if you'll skip down to verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his scrip, and a sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him, before the, the, the giant. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy of a fair and of a fair countenance. Now if you'll skip down to verse 45. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Now skip down to verse 48, please. And it came to pass when the Philistine rose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took thence a stone and slang it. He put it in his sling and threw it out of, out of the sling. We call him a slingshot. And smote the Philistine in his forehead 
that the stone, uh, the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. I want to make five quick statements or six quick statements about David. Number one, he was just a teenager. He was 16 to 18 years of age when this happened. Number two, he had a job even before he became famous, and he worked hard at that job. He took care of his dad's sheep. He risked his own life to protect them against the bear and the lion and other things like that. Number three, he loved, respected, and obeyed his father. Number four, he was willing to serve his brothers by taking them this cheese and bread and so forth. Number five, he got up early to do what it was he had to do. So he rose up early to go and do what his father commanded him to do. And then number six, David was told or reminded three times that he could not accomplish very much, nor could he make much of a difference because he was only a youth or what we would call a teenager. In the 15 times I've spoken in your church, I think there was one other time that I said what I'm about to say. Today, I'm going to speak basically to the teenagers this morning. I don't usually do that, especially not on a Sunday morning because there's so many adults here. But this morning, my message is basically for the young people that are here this morning. So I'm going to ask you to listen very carefully as I speak to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you'll bless during this time that uh, we uh, uh, bring this message. I pray you'll help every young person, every middle-aged person, and every elderly person in the room this morning to pay very close attention, not just to what I'm saying, but to what you are saying to their hearts. In Christ's name, amen. On Friday, December the 5th, 1941, my father and the 13 adult men who worked for him spent the day loading the three pulpwood trucks that my father owned. It was the last load of pine log pulpwood for the week that they would load and take to the train station. Late that afternoon, they drove the three trucks to the uh, train yard and unloaded the pulpwood logs by hand and reloading them onto the train. Then the yardmaster paid my father for the pulpwood he had delivered that week, and my father turned around and with cash made payroll to the 13 adult men who worked for him as his custom was to do every Friday. Two days later, December the 7th, 1941, Japan attacked, Pearl, uh, attacked America at Pearl Harbor. And America was drawn into what became known as World War II. By October of 1943, almost two years later, my father by that time was driving a cement truck instead of a uh, pulpwood truck. And they were pouring cement at Barksdale Air Force Base, expanding the runways uh, there in Shreveport, Louisiana, because they had built, designed and built larger bombers for the war. At that time, the war was still not going real well for America or her allies. 
So America was still expanding the draft to, to enlist every able-bodied man that they could, they could find. On October the 28th, 1943, my father was inducted into the U.S. Army. Seventeen weeks later, on February the 24th, 1944, he completed boot camp and volunteered for the paratroopers. The first morning, he was at jump school at Fort Benning, Georgia. They ran 10 miles that morning before breakfast in their combat boots. The men that were not able to complete the run passed out and were left laying on the ground. The other men just split and went around them. And that night when they stumbled back into camp, they were told to pack their bags because they had washed out of jump school. After the 10-mile run that morning, they had their breakfast, which was a half bowl of dry cornflakes and a cup of coffee. They spent the next four hours doing calisthenics in a sawdust pit and then spent the afternoon training how to jump out of C-47 uh, aircraft. My dad made uh, 29 jump, 29 recorded jumps. He found out there were so many men going through jump school at the time that the sergeants couldn't keep up with everybody's name. So he would answer roll call to his name and jump. Then he would get back in line and answer roll call to somebody else's name, and that person would pay him $15 to make their jump. <laughs> and he made 11 more jumps that were not recorded under his name and a total of 40 jumps. The last jump he made stateside before he was to ship out and go overseas and would have been in what we call D-Day, the Normandy invasion. As he started out the door, the man in front of him panicked and froze in the door and it caused my dad and the man in front of him to bump into each other and both go out the door at the same time and their parachutes tangled up with each other. Neither parachute opened all the way and when they hit the ground, the other man broke his back in four places and my father broke his foot. He spent six weeks in the hospital and then six months recovering. On January the 28th, 1945, my father hit the front lines of what has become known as the Battle of the Bulge. It was seven degrees below zero that morning and four foot of snow on the ground. That afternoon, they attacked a bridge earlier that morning. They had attacked the village of Holtzheim and taken that village. During that fight, my one of my dad's sergeants, Sergeant Steve Funk, won the Congressional Medal of Honor, but I won't go into that story. But that afternoon when they attacked a bridge, they took it away from the Germans. The Germans counterattacked and took it away from the Americans. The Americans attacked a second time, and when they attacked the second time, they took it from the Germans a second time. And when the battle finally ended, there were so many bodies on the bridge, the sergeant said to my dad and two other men, push those bodies off the bridge so we can drive our trucks across. And there were so many of them that they floated down the river and got hung up on a log jam and dammed up the river, and the river started overflowing its banks. The second day my dad was in combat, he was walking through the snow in the Ardeen Forest and he heard the crack of a German sniper's rifle. And at the same moment, he felt a dull thud hit the body that he was carrying on his back because he had found a wounded man in the snow and picked him up and was carrying him. And that body on his back went limp. Dad rolled the now dead soldier off his back and began to zigzag through the trees hoping the sniper would not try, try to, uh, a second shot. 
On the third day, my dad was in combat. January the 30th, 1945, they came to the little village of Lanzarath. It was the last village in Belgium that they would liberate before they crossed the border and went into Germany. The Americans were in foxholes in the edge of the forest just outside of Lanzarath, about 200 yards from the village across a pasture. The Germans were in the village and they noticed that the Americans were up there, so they attacked across the pasture. The firefight lasted an hour and 15 minutes. My dad was carrying the Browning automatic on the uh, rifle range during boot camp. He had scored 495 out of a possible 500 points. So he was the marksman for his squad, and so he was carrying the Browning automatic. And the sergeants moved him from one foxhole to another several times, and he got separated from the man that was carrying his ammunition. He found out later the reason they got separated was that man got wounded. My dad's machine gun ran out of ammunition quickly after they got separated, and so the man in the foxhole next to him handed my dad a collapsible stock carbine and told him to fire that weapon until the battle ended and my dad tried to give it back to him and the man said you better keep it and so my dad took his trenching tool his little shovel that was in a swivel holster on his side and threw the shovel away and put that collapsible stock carbine down in that uh, little holster like a like a long pistol and he kept it there and then they left the foxholes and started into the village a little after dark and when they did they heard a noise in the second house on the left as they were going into town. The sergeant, Sergeant Booth, said to my dad, Young, go see what that noise was. When my dad pushed the door of the house open with his foot, on the other side of the wall, on this side of the room, there was a full-length mirror hanging on the wall. The house across the street was on fire from the mortars they had fired in. And from the reflection of that fire in that full-length mirror, he saw someone standing behind the door, and he could tell they had two Colt 45 automatics in their hands waiting for him to walk through the door. They were going to shoot him in the back. Knowing that a moving target was harder to hit than, than, you know, he rolled on the floor, and when he did, he pulled the trigger of his Browning automatic. And a German lady fell dead on the floor next to him. She was a member of the German underground, and she would have shot him if he had not shot her. On February the 7th, 1945, they crossed the German border and fought their way through what is called the Siegfried Line, Hitler's final line of defense. On February the 18th, they were in a little village called Brandenburg. My dad stepped around the corner of the, of the house and he heard three shots. And as he heard the shots and looked up, he noticed a German lieutenant was firing at him with a semi-automatic pistol. Not having time to bring his Browning automatic down, cock it and fire, he reached for the pistol grip of that collapsible stock carbine that was still in that swivel holster. While it was still in the holster, he swiveled it up, pulled the trigger. He had filed down the trigger mechanism to make it automatic instead of semi-automatic, and it unloaded the eight-round clip 
and the last three rounds hit the German lieutenant in the chest. On February the 23rd, my dad's unit captured the last concrete bunker that they would capture before he was pulled out of combat. By then, they had gotten pretty good at surrounding those concrete bunkers, fighting their way in, killing the enemy, taking it away from them. But on this particular bunker, it was harder than usual. They lost four Americans killed. I think two or three others wounded. When they got inside and found the 36 Germans that had been killed on the inside of the bunker, the man that was fighting with the 50 caliber machine gun had fallen dead over top of the machine gun and his hands were still gripping the machine gun as he was laying there dead. And they found out that that man was a 12-year-old boy that Hitler had pulled out of his Hitler youth movement and stuck into the battle in the last minute of the war, last moments of the war. The next morning, February 24th, they crossed the Ruhr River. The American engineers had put floating pontoon bridges across the river the night before, the night of the 23rd and the 24th. That morning about daylight, my dad's unit led the attack across those bridges. When he got about two-thirds of the way across, a German 88-millimeter howitzer hit the bridge in front of him, blew it in half, and it began to whip back and forth in the current. They couldn't get back to where they had started from, so they had to go off the end of the bridge into the raging water. The river had been flooded by the Germans by blowing up a dam upstream. They set up a beachhead on the other side of the river and held it during the day. That night, the 99th Infantry crossed the river and came through and took their position from them. Of the 119 men who answered roll call that morning before they crossed the river in my dad's unit, 37 men answered roll call that night. On April the 1st, they pulled my dad's unit out of combat and specially trained them on how to jump inside of prisoner of war camps and liberate American prisoners as they fought their way across Germany. On May the 7th, 1945, the war in Germany ended. Germany surrendered. On July the 20th, 1945, my father celebrated his 20th birthday. America today is under attack. We've heard it in the news over and over and over recently. As Brother Vasek mentioned earlier, there are people in America who are organized for the purpose of taking from us our freedom. Our freedom to own this book right here. You know there's countries in the world where it's against the law to own a copy of this book. You're put in prison if you own a copy of this book. If they catch you handing this book to somebody else, they cut your hand off. That's how they punish you for the crime. of. And in America, we can own this book and read it. We can come to an assembly like this 
freely and not have to be in fear of being arrested and thrown into prison. But there are people in America today that are trying to take our freedom away from us. And as he mentioned, their main thing they're against is us preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people can get saved and go to heaven. The Bible went on to say about David that David served his own generation by the will of God. You know, I'm 62 years of age, and I've been preaching the Bible for 47 years now, uh, for almost 48 years. But you know, I'm 62. I don't have 62 more years left. Before I live another 62 years, I'll be gone. And if 62 years from now we have the freedom in America to preach this book and for your children and your grandchildren to come to a a church like this and hear the gospel preach and find out how to go to heaven, we're going to have to have some young people in this generation that will serve their generation like David served his. And I know some of the teenagers here this morning may wonder, well, how can I do that? What can I do? Well, one thing you can do is you can pray for the other teenagers in your school. Some of you have just recently started coming to this church because somebody invited you from your school to come to this church to hear the gospel preached so you could get saved, so you could go to heaven. Well, now there's other teenagers in your school that need to hear that same gospel and you need to by name start praying for them that God will help them to get saved or God would help them with the problems they have in their life some of them struggle with drugs or alcohol or or different kinds of abuse and and they're unloved and so forth and and you need to begin to pray for them number one number two you need to love them love them enough to care to care about whether or not they go to heaven some of you recently somebody like brother Zach or or Miss Catherine or somebody or you're a Sunday school teacher here or brother Vasek or or someone else here in this church they took a Bible and they showed you from the Bible how you could trust Jesus Christ and how you could know you were going to go to heaven when you die and like he talked about this morning as we were taking the ordinance of the uh, Lord's Supper you know uh, Jesus Christ died so that you could be saved and go to heaven and somebody explained that to you just recently now you know you need to care care enough that you tell somebody else at your high school you tell somebody else at your high school about a church like this you get them to come to church with you so they'll have a chance to hear it and then care enough to live right in front of them you know how you live is going to determine whether or not they think it's anything real to it You know, how you talk, how you dress, how you behave, what you talk about, where you go, the things you do, all of that, the the way you live in front of them, it's going to say to them that what you found out recently is real or it's just a bunch of fake. And then the fourth thing and the last thing is this, you can invite them to come to church with you. Now, some of you may understand how to get saved. And you may understand it well enough that you could take a Bible and you could explain it to somebody else and they could get saved just like you did. But there may be some of you that you're saved, you know you're going to heaven, but you don't quite understand it well enough yet to explain it to somebody else, but you could invite them to come to church with you. You can invite your brothers or your sisters or your mom or your dad and you can invite them to come to church so that when they get here, somebody can explain to them not how to become a Baptist, not how to change their religion, not how to, 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 to dislike the people they used to go to church with, but how to find out for sure that they're saved so they're going to go to heaven someday when they die. 
Every one of us have sinned. Every person in this room and every person that's ever lived on this earth except Jesus Christ has done something wrong. They've told a lie. They've gotten angry. They've hit somebody. They've stole something. They've done something wrong. We all have. Every single one of us have. And because we've sinned, we don't deserve to get to go to heaven. We deserve to go to a place called hell. And that's why Jesus Christ came to the earth to pay our penalty for us. We owe a debt. We owe a penalty. When you commit a crime, you have to go to jail and pay for that crime by paying a penalty by being in jail for a certain amount of time. Well, the only way to pay for our sins is to be in hell forever. But Jesus Christ didn't want us to go to hell because he loves us. So he volunteered to suffer for us. He volunteered to pay our price. It was his idea. Nobody forced him into it. Nobody talked him into it. The Bible says he was the author of our salvation. He's the one who wrote out the plan for himself to die in our place that would pay for our sins. If you have already had somebody explain that to you, and you've already accepted Christ as your Savior, now you know for sure you're going to go to heaven when you die. But you may have a brother or a sister or an uncle or an aunt or a friend at school or a mom or dad or a cousin or a son or a nephew who doesn't know yet. And what you can do is this morning you can decide if I'm not saved, then maybe I should. Maybe I should let somebody show me how to get saved so I know how to go to heaven. But if you're already saved, then you ought to decide this morning, I'm going to pray for those that I don't know that are saved. Those that I know, and I don't know for sure if they're saved or not, I'm going to pray for them by name. I'm going to call their name out to God and ask God to help them to understand how you get saved. And then I'm going to try to live right in front of them. And I'm going to try to show them that I love them enough, that I care about them, and I want them to go to church with me and hear how to get saved. This morning, we're going to have what we call an invitation. We're going to invite you to do something. What we're going to invite you to do is this. If you're not sure you're saved, we're going to invite you to let one of us take a Bible and in just three or four minutes' time show you three or four verses from the Bible and explain to you how you can put your faith in Christ, not how you can... Join a religion, not how you can uh, uh, become a better person, but how you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and say, I know I can't get myself to heaven, but Jesus can. I'm going to trust him to take me to heaven. And if you're not, if you're already saved this morning, we're going to invite you to make a decision. I'm going to live the rest of my life in such a way that I can help those that I love, that I care about, to get saved so they can go to heaven. I'd like for you at this time to bow your head and close your eyes. We're probably going to be...